Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 2. While you're turning there, just give a, a brief note of kind of warning where we are, I guess, anchoring us in the text. We're still in the introduction to Isaiah. First five uh, chapters kind of function as uh, the introduction before really chapter 6 kind of starts the narrative, so to speak. Uh, And chapter 2 functions really as an entire unit, but I've broken it up into two sermons, uh, where last week we looked at verses 1 through 5, where it presents kind of through the lens of prophecy uh, what God is doing in creation. Uh, that's he's building for himself a people, and he's, he's using construction terminology of, of building a city, uh, but really in that city he's building him for himself a people, fulfilled originally in, in, in Jerusalem, but ultimately in the church. And that city would be filled with blessing, so much so that it would draw the nations to it, uh, it would administer the Word of God, and would administer peace. And the rest of chapter 2 is going to kind of switch gears from um, what God is, is designed to do, what He's doing with His people, to uh, kind of rubber hit the road, what are His people trying to do. And we're going to find out, obviously, who wins. But we're going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole of chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord." For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So, man is humbled. Each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. 
For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, against the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of His majesty, when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is He? Father, these are hard words, but they are good words, for they are Your Word. And even beyond that, they are Your Word for us today. Lord, would You give us faith. For Christ's sake, amen. Remember years ago, reading, engaging material, looking at kind of the fallout from the two atomic bombs dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, looking at kind of the consequences of what those blasts left behind. I'm not going to comment on the merit or usefulness of dropping them, whether we should or shouldn't. That's not what I'm addressing today, but more contemplating kind of the consequences of it, of how far the shock wave, the concussive wave was fatal, and how long the atomic radiation was problematic. I think two of the things that are the most intriguing to me, one is uh, I think probably the image that many of us are, are familiar with, the, the gentleman where his uh, his eyes were washed out uh, by the blast. He was close enough and didn't get his eyes closed because it was too quick, and it, it created these magnificent swirls as the radiation kind of consumed his eyes. As a young man reading this, I, I think the one that intrigued me the most, though, and there's a famous part of the city uh, where you could go after the blast and see the shadows of all of the people that had been vaporized. The blast was so powerful that when it hit them, it basically unmade them. It turned them to dust in essence. Their bodies were never found. They were just consumed in the blast. But the interesting thing is that the the light and the power and the radiation itself, as it hit their bodies, their bodies absorbed it, 
And as a result, it didn't absorb it on the ground. And so you can walk, used to be able to walk through parts of the cities and actually see the shadows of the people that were gone from where they had been consumed by the radiance of the blast. This most amazing thing, because these people just, they stopped existing instantly. Bomb went off, they're gone. But years later, portraits, reminders of the fashion in which they were consumed, the radiance of light destroying them. That image comes to mind, particularly in the latter part of this section of the Scriptures. Isaiah in these first five chapters is laying out what he intends to talk about through the entirety of the book. And in chapter 1, we came across this grave concern that those who call themselves by the name of the Most High have not been living the way that they were called to live. Rather, their hearts have been prone to wander. Their hearts have been prone to love other things, other loves, other not-gods. And the consequences are catching up with them. The contrast in between chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 is, is refreshing and redemptive. You see that even in the midst of sin, the Lord is in the process of building something beautiful and wonderful. He's, he's creating a city that's filled with goodness and grace. It's designed in a way that we would all want to live there. Now again, as modern readers, understanding prophecy tends to have multiple reference. It refers to multiple things. We see this ultimately fulfilled in the church at the second coming, but even before that, in the church even now, never ultimately fulfilled in Israel. The problem here changes though in verse 6 as we see that even as the Lord is building something good and great and grand and beautiful, His people are not on board. His people are filled with self, pursuing other ends, not walking in the light of God. You have this shocking kind of lack of transition, this jarring change between verse 5 and verse 6. Verse 5, this sweet appeal Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. How sweet. How delightful. People of God, let us walk in the light of God. And then verse 6. It changes no longer addressing the people of God, but addressing God Himself, even saying, for you have rejected them already. You have rejected the house of God because of their sin, the house of Jacob. I think just a multitude of things could be Pulled out of these verses here, verses 6 through 9 particularly, I'd like to highlight just one kind of in 
preparation for what will follow in the following verses. But to focus specifically kind of on the nature of sin that's outlined in verses 6 through 9. Right, 6 begins with this declarative statement that God has already rejected His people. And it ends. Look at how verse 9 ends. This is horrible. Each man is humbled. Each one is brought low. So do not forgive them. It's, it's a request of God that if the people are in this condition, don't forgive them. Don't restore them. If they stay like this, if, if they're going to live this kind of life, let them do it. Don't redeem them. It's bracketed with these, this, this horrible beginning and this horrible end. And you would think, what's in the middle? <laughs> what's in the middle of a paragraph that is so bad that it says, God, you've already rejected them, and by the way, please don't forgive them because the sin they're in is so bad. What are they doing? Well, I mean, I think if we probably push pause on the text for a second, and if we were in Sunday school and you hadn't read, read ahead, and I said, what, what sins are so bad that the prophets would say, don't forgive the people of God, their sins are so bad? What, what would you think? And probably if we got the, you know, the old writing pad out and made ourselves a list, we'd, we'd create a who's who of the worst sins, wouldn't we? Most likely it'd be the sins that the people that irritate us the most commit, but that's, let's be honest, that's probably what we would do. And even if we were to carry on that conversation a bit further, we would probably stop and kind of really kind of get it. All of those sins in some fashion are because they're bad for us which is true, or because they're, they're rejecting God, which is true. But we forget that maybe kind of <clears throat> one of the significant parts of how sin is talked about in the Scriptures is that unquestionably, sin is talked about from the perspective of working against God. Most of us, I think probably when we think about our own sin, we think of it as this kind of passive entity, this thing that like, oh no, I sinned again, and I don't like it, but it's kind of not that big of a deal, and I will repent, and it goes away, and it's fine. Oh no, I lost my temper again, I'm sorry, I'll apologize to the person, will you please forgive me and motor on, and it's okay. Because we have in so many ways in this kind of current church moment in time, we have removed the vertical emphasis of sin. We've, we've dealt with it internally. It's my own kind of cognitive dissonance. I, I'm unhappy when I do it. I'm, I'm not living my best life now when I'm doing it. I'm, I'm unfulfilled in myself when I sin, and I should, not, you know, I should stop sinning so I can live a more fulfilled life. Yeah, okay, true, yeah. Or we're very good at sometimes talking about the horizontal element of, okay, when I sin, I, I, I sin against my brother and I have to have his forgiveness, or I, I sin against my sister and I have to have her forgiveness, and we violated kind of, you know, those relationships together. But it's almost like our flesh is actively working, because it is, 
to remove the vertical component. That at its core, every time I sin, I'm declaring myself to be working with the enemies of God. I'm, I'm functioning on the other side. I'm working with the other team. I mean, in some ways, can you imagine we have, by God's mercy, a very strong gift to us here. We have a lot of veterans in the room. Many have seen active duty, um, some active combat. Now, can you imagine how it would go if we began to think about sin as like going out into combat, and every time we sin, we begin to fight for the other side? Every time we sin, we're, we're shooting one of our compatriots. Like, oh, I'm having a bad moment. Shoot your, you know, fellow soldier right next to you. How long do you serve in that capacity where every time you have kind of a a bad moment, you shoot your own soldiers? What happens to that soldier? Is he on the field very long? We've forgotten, again, this kind of vertical element to think of the fact that every time we sin, what we're doing is treason against God, and we're actively working against what He's doing. We're fighting Him, sinning against Him. Look at what happens in the text. Verse 6, you've rejected your people, the house of Jacob. Why have you rejected your people? Because... Verse 6, 7, and 8 are the exact opposites of verses 2, 3, and 4. Verse 2, God's building a city that's going to be so great that all of the nations come to that city. Verse 6, the people of God who declare but are sinning are not building a city that the nations are going to come to. Instead, they're going to the nations to become just like them. Rather than being unique and bringing everybody in and saying, this is what holiness looks like, these people are going out and living just like the pagans. Because they're full of things from the East. They've brought in foreign culture. And this is not a commentary on immigration. This is a commentary on religion. They've brought in false religion. They've brought in fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. They're, They're making deals with the Gentiles, with the pagans, with the unbelievers. Instead of building a city of holiness that everybody wants to come to and and see and enjoy and experience, these people are increasingly going out and becoming like the world. They're acting like the Gentiles. And in doing so, they're fighting against God. They're resisting His building plan, His plan inside creation. It doesn't stop there. Verse 3, this was supposed to be the city uh, where God's law was administered. And then verse 4, that city was supposed to be where peace was dispensed. So that if you wanted to hear the Word of God, you went to the city of God, and if you wanted to experience peace, you went to the city of God. What happens in verses 7 and 8? The land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. They're extremely wealthy, so it's, it's not an issue of lack of resources. 
And what are they spending their money on? Well, they're spending their money on horses and chariots. The elite, premier military technology. Specifically, the military technology that Israel was largely forbidden to have. Rather than trusting God to be the one who would fight against them or fight for them, rather than trusting God to be the one who would be their defender, their soldier, their divine warrior, what are they doing is they're dumping their holy money into the religious military complex in an effort to promote their own national security. Rather than being the nation that's dispensing peace the way that God has designed, they are the entity dispensing war. And rather than being the nation that is dispensing the Word of God, verse 3, what happens, verse 8, they are the nation that is dispensing idolatry. Land filled with idols, they bow down to the works of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. It's interesting, at least to me, maybe not to you, a passage that's bracketed with the strongest of language, rejected the house of Jacob for their sin, even at the end, it's so bad, their sin is so bad, don't forgive them for it. It's so bad. And interestingly, what are the sins they're doing? Living like the world, living like the world, and living like the world. I mean, I think by most of our metrics, I, I suspect if, if we had made that Sunday school list of what's so bad that God's going to give this kind of response, probably none of us are putting, well, living like the world. That's probably not on our list. Right? We'll have the biggies on the list. But it turns out, actually, our biggies don't really match God's biggies. That's part of the problem, really. You see, what's happening here is the Lord is viewing their sin through the lens of what it actually is. It's rebellion against God. It's resisting Him. It's declaring war against Him. They're working on the other team. They're fighting for the other side, and as a result, the Lord treats it with utmost seriousness. Now, the reality of the matter is, for some of us in here in the room, this is the sermon you need to hear. Now, here's the great joy in pastoring. I don't know which of you are in that category. I just preach it, and I'm going to trust the Spirit's going to use His Word. But the reality is that there are some in this room that you know, you know, deep down in your heart, that if it came down to it, you're living just like the world. You know that if it's had to be honestly, an honest description of you, you know that you look more like out there than you do in here. And friends, if that's the case, this is the Lord 
calling you to repent. It's not too late today, but it is time for you to repent and to change. And some of you know that's my story. I grew up in the church. I think I was probably a Christian all my life. I don't remember days apart from Jesus. I do, however, remember a very uncomfortable conversation with a youth pastor in roughly about 10th grade where he sat me down and was like, Michael, I understand that you say that you're a Christian. The problem is, if anybody were to look at your life, they could not confirm that statement. So you either need to do one of two things. You either need to stop saying you're a Christian or you need to get serious about your walk with God. Those are the only two options. Be upfront about it. You're either headed to hell or you gotta change how you live. Only two options. Maybe not the most delicate man I've ever known, but boy, it was good for my soul. <laughs> Produce some deep thought in a young man's heart to have to really come to terms with that. No, like, really. If God is who he says he is, and I am who I say I am, somebody's gotta change, and it can't be God. <laughs> Because he can't change, which means it has to be me. It has to be me. Some of you perhaps, you understand that, at least intellectually. Maybe you understand that emotionally, but you feel like one of those cartoon characters where your, your feet are spinning spiritually, but you just don't feel like you're going anywhere. Right, the wily coyote moment where his legs are churning as fast as he can go, but he's just not advancing any further. He's not making any progress. It almost feels like the ground's fallen out from under him, which half the time it has. I think Isaiah 2 actually gives us a little bit of the remedy for that. You know, we get verses 6 through 9, which are so harsh, a scathing rebuke for those that call themselves the people of God, but live like the world. And then verses 10 through the end of the chapter, you have two, largely two remedies that are put in front. And interestingly, these are not the kind of remedies I think that most of the time we like to have. I know my own heart, I I love the kinds of problems where it's the like, take two of these and call me in the morning kind of solution. It's my favorite is Uh, having, you know, being a parent of young children, if they had ear infections, it was great. Here's an antibiotic, they'll be fine in 48 hours. No one else is going to get sick. It's the best. I love those kinds of treatments. Take two of these and call me in the morning. The problem, the interesting thing here, I guess, is that uh, this sort of sin is so great that Isaiah is even pleading with the Lord not to forgive the people. This is, this is not that kind of sickness, This isn't a common head cold. This isn't a a minor ear infection. This is fatal. And so the remedy that he gives is like maximum chemo. It's of utmost aggression in providing healing for the people of God. And what it is, is, and you're going to see this as so much of the theme of Isaiah, It's an effort to bring the glory and majesty of the triune God into the created order so that creation itself begins to understand just a little bit better how big He is and how great He is and how grand He is and how wonderful He is. In essence, His solution is to go stand in front of the blast of the glory of God and be consumed. 
Because whether you like it or not, the entire created order will be consumed in that fashion. Verses, excuse me, 10 through 17. This is what happens when the glory of God intrudes into the created order. The strength of the strong things evaporates. You know, that's part of what's happening here is these people are trusting in things beside the Lord. It's what gives them the, the illusion of safety while they are at odds with the living and true God. And what happens is when God steps inside time and space, when His glory enters into the created order, the strong things evaporate. Verse 10, enter into the rock, hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord, from before the splendor of His majesty. God arrives in glory. And what is Isaiah's recommendation? Friend, if you can find somewhere to hide, I'd tell you to be there. Because the glory of God is not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to be ignored. It's not something to be like, well, I'm sure it won't be that big of a deal, really. Right? Like many of us when we had COVID, eh, COVID won't be that bad until for some of us it actually is. The glory of the Lord is so different. It's overwhelming. It's comprehensive. It's profound. It alters the created order in itself. So what happens to the strong things when God's glory shows up? Verse 11, the strong man is brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted. Verse 12, he here goes into kind of literary uh, brilliance, the the beauty of an excellent author now taking illustration after illustration after illustration of all the things that are strong and removing them from the hearts of the people of God. What happens on the day when God's glory shows up? The proud are destroyed. And all that is lifted up is brought low. Let's look at our examples. Verse 13, the cedars of Lebanon, the mighty trees. These trees were massive. They were the ones used to build the temple. They were the portraits of strength and might, tall and strong. The cedars of Lebanon will be brought low. The oaks of Bashan, these also mighty trees in their strength, brought low. The lofty mountains, the portraits of strength and immovability, they are brought low. The uplifted hills, they are brought low. Now the military industrial complex, the high towers, the fortified walls, they are brought low. Even the navy brought low. Even art itself brought low. Everything that has might and strength and grandeur cannot stand before the living and true God. Part of the reason why we are so comfortable living, behaving like the enemies of God is because we find false comfort in the strong things of the world. 
We find false consolation that, hey, you know what? I got my 401k, and the administration hasn't fully destroyed that yet, so realistically, at the end of the day, I'm going to be okay, right? I'll be all right. Come hell or high water, I'll be all right. I've got my 401k, I'll be okay. Or I've got my kids, and you know what? Everybody else may hate me. The world may hate me. I may have to go eat some worms, but you know what? I've got my wife and I've got my kids and, and I'm, I can be happy with that. I can have identity with that. I can have meaning with that. I can have value with that. Or I've got my hobbies that provide me with a sense of entertainment. Or I've got my job which will provide me with a sense of value and merit. We, we're trusting in the, the strong things of creation The problem is the strong things of creation are not actually that strong. And in fact, actually, can evaporate in a moment. Some in this room have walked some of those paths with tears where a marriage evaporated in a moment. Or a child was called home too early. Or a spouse taken to the Savior's side. Some in this room actually are old enough to remember the feeling that we had kind of nationally 9-11, where in a moment the strong things of this nation were taken away in the space of about an hour and ten minutes, right? Now, those younger in the room, wow, it's weird to think of that being younger in the room, those 30 years and younger, I guess, not old enough to remember that. But to remember the the, the national fear, we couldn't fly anywhere because we didn't know which planes would then be weaponized in the future. We didn't drive anywhere because we didn't know which cities were going to be destroyed in the future. And for those that lived in those cities, there was immense sense of panic because, oh no, one of the churches I pastored in the past, not that far from the CDC, they were in the nuke list. Uh, if cities were taken in order, they were, I think, city number three in the United States order for which would probably disappear from the face of the earth. It, it's serious. And it's intriguing that what God is teaching is part of it. The reason why we're so comfortable living in our sin is because we're trusting in the strength of the things around us. And the strong chemo is to understand that when God's glory intervenes, all the strong things disappear. They're vaporized. Like those bodies by the atomic bomb, they just disappear, crumble before the glory of the Lord. Not only does it stop with the strong things of the world being taken away, Verses 18 through 22, it's the idols of these people being taken away. The idols shall utterly pass away. 18, verse 19, back to it, go hide again. Glory of God is here. Uh, The the mighty power of the Lord is here. Go hide. Uh, Why? Because in that day, verse 20, the idols of silver and gold, they will be cast away. They will be made to be given to the moles and to the bats. I love that. What a, what a great shame. These things that we worship, these not gods that we worship, become companions 
for the bats because they are no living God. They are no true God. They are no redeeming God. They are no God, not God's. It's interesting, so much of our lives, again, are, are, are built on a false economy. I mentioned this earlier, where we value things that God Himself does not value, and we value them incorrectly. We value our pleasure so highly as a nation, it's become our number one ethical goal as a nation. I will do the things that make me happy and give me pleasure. You live according to your truth, <laughs> what's going to make you happy. I was listening to an interview this week, actually, from a a lady from San Francisco, and it was interesting. Somebody asked her the question of ethics, and she's from PhD or something. I don't even remember. And her answer was interesting. Ethics in San Francisco. It was, do what makes you feel good about yourself, because that voice inside will never lie to you. It will never tell you faults. Like, oh, great, yeah, awesome. That's why six and a half percent of that city's population has left in the last 18 months. Good job, well done, good, excellent. We as a nation are living, following, pursuing our own kind of value set. And the problem is, is our values don't line up with God's. We, we don't understand. We've placed our value on the wrong things. There's a story about this a couple of years ago. <clears throat> Excuse me, a lady was cleaning out the attic. I think it was her father's attic. I can't remember whose it was, and found a, an old mandolin. It looked old. Uh, so when she put it in the yard sale, she said, you know what? It's old, so it's probably worth $20. Fair enough. I'm sure it was, and it was sold for $20. And the person who bought it figured out this one looked unusually old actually got out the flashlight, started looking inside the F-holes, you know, on the, in the, the body of the mandolin, and found out and could kind of see part of a serial number. I think they had to get, you know, Q-tips to clean it out so they could see the whole thing. And they recognized that the headstock said Lore, which is a L-O-A-R mandolin. They're pretty good mandolins. And once you could see on the inside that it was actually an F-5 with a certain serial number, that mandolin was worth somewhere between one hundred sixty-five and $185,000 purchased for 20 bucks at a garage sale. Their value of that mandolin was completely wrong. They were overvaluing other things and undervaluing this one. Here you have this $200,000 mandolin bought for 20 bucks at a yard sale. You see, again, so much of our lives, we're living with the wrong economic set the wrong value set. We've got our price tags all wrong. The Lord has told us what is valuable and what is not, and we're like, you know what? Nah, I think I got a better idea of it. I mean, I know your Bible tells me what's valuable and your Bible tells me what's not, but I think I could probably do a better job of identifying value. And interestingly, when the glory of God is presented in our midst, what happens? All the prices are set correctly. All of the idols are burnt away and destroyed. All of the things that are strong are made weak. The Lord's glory rules and reigns over all. Now the beauty of this is when we kind of think about how these prophecies are fulfilled. We know in in part 
and partial. They were fulfilled in uh, 586 when um, Jerusalem is invaded and destroyed. We know in part that uh, all of the, uh, the city of God and the lands of God were destroyed. And were destroyed on purpose and were destroyed as punishment for sin and they were brought low and all of these fulfilled in some fashion. But interestingly, that was only in part. In that one, the glory of God was seen through an army, an invading army, but it was a human army. And it wouldn't be until many years later that we would begin to see the final fulfillment of this start where the glory of God would step inside time and inside space and would step inside time and space and energy and matter inside the form of a baby so that God's glory would reside in man inside the created order. And again, the disciples kind of get that in part. They understand this is the kingdom of God, but they miss what it's going to be in its entirety. You misunderstand and don't catch the full picture that while Jesus shows up in the way our confession says it, in humility the first time, he shows up in exaltation the second. We have the first coming where Jesus steps inside time, space, matter, and energy, becomes fully human, fully man, truly man, to redeem for himself a people. But he doesn't continue in that low estate forever. And in fact, actually, we have a second coming to look forward to. We have his return. You see, in so many ways, this is the chemo, the radical healing for casual Christianity. You see, the answer is not in your will, that's not the solution. Hey, uh, you have a worldly Christianity. You should try harder. You probably should try harder, but that's not ultimately the answer. It's not sin less. You probably should sin less, but that's not the answer. The answer, the radical treatment, the radical healing, the radical chemo to a casual worldly Christianity is to begin to understand the glory and grandeur of the triune God. Because friends, when He shows up, when Christ returns for the second coming, there will be no underestimating His beauty and brilliance. When he arrives on the clouds with the glory of God surrounding him, the hosts of heaven, the people of God with him, descending to earth for judgment day, there will be total glory. Now, the reality is some of us are going, well, okay, I mean, I understand, Pastor Michael, that I need to have a better appreciation of the glory of God. I get that, but I'm having problems understanding that now. Fair enough, actually. I I deal with that a lot. But I suggest humbly, part of the issue is because you're not looking. So much of God's glory is constantly being revealed around us, but we refuse to look. How do we know that? Well, one, this is where His glory is contained. Two, in this it tells us that His glory is also seen in each other. 
We're made in His image. But even beyond that, we get to see His glory in His workings, in the way that He takes care of us, in the way that He provides for us, in the way that He shelters us and shields us, in the way that He watches over us, in the way that He keeps His promises to us, in the way that He's faithful to us, in the way that we see all of the promises fulfilled, yes and amen, in the Lord Jesus, and we can experientially confirm that by our daily lives, that our God takes care of us and watches out for us. Friends, I'll end with this. It's the one thing, not the one thing only, but one of the things, I guess, that's guaranteed for all men and women, boys and girls everywhere, is that you will, in some sense, experience the totality of the glory of God. It's what it means to be human. That we live this life, and at one point we will die, most likely, unless the Lord Jesus comes back, and we will be ushered into His glory. And we will either be ushered there for judgment, if we are found apart from Christ or in Christ by the forgiveness that He offers, brought into His glory to be made fully blessed for the full enjoying of God forever. Part of our mission, part of the reason, one of the many reasons why we're left in this place is to begin our appreciation and experience of that glory now. As we understand Christ and believe Him and trust Him, He is the glory of God incarnate. He's the image of the invisible God. He is God's glory for us. Colossians 1 tells us that. Don't wait. Don't wait. Don't squander the life the Lord has given you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the wisdom that you give to your people when we ask And, O Lord, we ask that you would give us the wisdom to see and to understand and to appreciate your glory. For Christ's sake, amen.